0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is
1: Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of unscripted television like never before. with insight from some of the best in the business of reality TV, documentary series, competition shows, social experiments, true crime, and much more. From Bar Rescue to Breaking Amish to Love is Blind to The Vow. If it's unscripted, we'll get into it. I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I'm a 15-year veteran producer of unscripted television with shows like Extreme Makeover, Home Edition, BattleBots, OutDaughtered, The Rachel Zoe Project, and Friday Night Tykes among my credits. Each week, I talk to the talented people who have made unscripted TV, documentaries, true crime, and game shows, not just something you watch, but a cultural phenomenon. Now, if you enjoy no script, no problem, please subscribe and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Bleeve.com and at Bleeve Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Bleeve at Bleeve.com. All right, let's get started. Today, my guest is an extremely talented and seasoned producer and creative executive. He started out as a news producer before transitioning into the wild world of reality TV. He's currently the co-president of Hot Snakes Media, which he runs with his wife, Shannon. He's produced such shows as Def You for Netflix, which is currently streaming, Breaking Amish for TLC, Extinct or Alive for Discovery, True Life, First Time First Responders for MTV, Return to Amish, Amish, Mafia, and many, many others. Please welcome Eric Evangelista. Eric, thanks for being here, man.
0: Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me.
1: So uh, we're recording this November 2nd. We have the election tomorrow. Are you as stressed as I am?
0: Yeah, it's stressful. I'm not sleeping. I'm staying up really late watching all the news channels. I'm an old news junkie. I worked in news for like 14 years. So like watching every news channel, flipping through the channels. um, Yeah, those old habits never really die. So yeah, I worked in news from when I was 17 um, all the way up until 2004. You know, I'm glad I get to watch it now instead of working in it because you dread when you work in news, you dread these things, you know? You dread working on nights like that. I started at a newspaper called the Boston Herald um, in Boston, which was you know still around, a pretty big newspaper. Um, and I was like a copy boy, uh, which is now called an editorial assistant, which is just you know answer phones, write a few things here and there. And I worked my way up to getting a you know a byline. And then I worked in local news, worked my way up to being an executive producer there, working in sports too when I was there. Um, it sounds like you did too.
1: Yeah. You know the yeah. thing when
0: you when you work in news. Like there's some really talented people who work in news, but then there's also some not so talented people. Like, and it's kind of what I explained to people, this is gonna sound awful, but when I grew up, I, I grew up in Boston, just outside of Boston. I didn't know anybody in TV. And to me, I was watching TV ever since I was two years old, wanting to be in television, studying television, knowing that I wanted to work in TV watching every single show on television that you can imagine throughout the late 70s and 80s. You know, every sitcom, every late night show, every Saturday morning cartoon, everything you could imagine, having a vast knowledge of it. And the only way you could get into TV growing up in Boston was through news, because that's all there was in that town. And you would go there and you would think like, these people are gonna be super smart. They're going to be so... It's like, yes. they're not. You think like, it's, they're dumb. Like most of the people you work with in TV aren't that smart, you know? And like I, I always tell young people, like, you know, don't be so, like, you think this is so hard to do and everybody's gonna be so smart and yet like, they're not, you know, like, <laughs> uh, it was one of the. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> you you're absolutely I, right, yeah. That's yeah. weird, right? Like, I don't know if you ever, I don't know where you worked in news, but if you ever realized that, how old you were when you realized that, like, it, these people aren't that bright. Even when I went to ABC News in Manhattan, I, I was like, you know, you, you, you join the Writers Guild and you, with you know, with the other writers, you like, they're not that bright, these, like, I, <laughs> you know, I, I always used to fantasize about it when I was a kid, like, oh, these people are gonna be so much more intelligent than me. And then when I moved to reality TV, you know, when you went and started pitching your own shows and, you know, thinking like, then I, you know, I had that kind of, Belief again. I thought, oh, I'm gonna go pitch Comedy Central. This guy's gonna know everything about comedy, and you know, <laughs> I didn't know anything. This is like 2005 or something. I was in a pitch at Comedy Central, and I referenced the old Howard Stern Channel Nine show to the guy I was pitching, and he didn't know what it was. Right. And I'm like, how do you not know what that is? Like, how do you not know? Like, I was a little <laughs> stunned. Like, I thought, you like, how do you not know every? You know, you don't have to know every show, but. You know, right, but right. You, you have to know some things, you know, you you. anyway.
1: I started out as, you know, very low level, like PA in Cincinnati at WXIX, which is the Fox affiliate there. And then yeah. I went on air as like the low level reporter, sports reporter slash news producer in beautiful Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which. Oh, OK. I'm, yes. I'm sure we can swap stories about small town America. Um And I went from there to then lovely. Uh Morgantown, West Virginia slash Clark. So, but I guess
0: what I know about you, I can already tell I, I yeah. see, from doing this for so long, you probably know how to shoot football really, oh, yeah. really well. So oh, you can, yes. cause because there are guys who, you know, you can get a cameraman in reality TV. Like when you went and did Friday night Tikes, right? Yes. Cause I, I heard you say you did yes. Friday night Tikes. Yes. You can't just get any old, you know, the, the, the guy who shot on one of your other shows, that's an awesome camera person, right? Yeah. probably isn't the right person to go shoot friday night Tights. i bet uh, you you were the best shooter for football on friday night Tights because you probably in morgantown and in johnson pa shot six football games every friday night right Oh my at God. least oh, minimal
1: absolutely yeah and i shot wvu you know west virginia university i shot penn state shot the steelers so in a lot of ways i made barely above minimum wage but it was some of the like it was some of the best sports experiences of my life um what was well, the moment for you that you were like okay i'm gonna give it a shot and and leave my comfort zone of news and and get into unscripted
0: so i moved to new york i left news in boston to move to new york to do that and I picked up a freelance job at, at ABC News. I was freelance there just to pay the bills while I tried to move to New York to work in television, work in entertainment. And my job at ABC News um, was just kind of paying the bills for me, right? That was kind of I, I would work for, you know, freelance three to four days a week and, and do that. So the first thing I worked on was a show called Film Fakers, which aired on AMC. Um, and it was me and I had a writing partner named Chris Pataki, and we helped create this show called Film Fakers, which was six fake films that we wrote, uh, where we cast unsuspecting actors in really bad fake movies. They thought they were in real movies, but they were fake movies yeah. that were so disastrously bad and all kinds of horrible things would happen. And that aired on on. Um, AMC, and it was a really, really fun show, so I caught the bug after that, and we just started creating more and more content, but I started creating more content and, you know, partnering up with production companies, and I noticed that it really wasn't, when you partner with a production company, they would change your idea, and I really wasn't in charge of the show, and I really wasn't able to provide my vision for the show, and it never kind of worked out, you know, the way I wanted it to. I would have all these crazy ideas, but they would get kind of dumbed down, and I wasn't really happy with it. So I decided to kind of start my own thing. So when I created Breaking Amish, uh, the network, I lied to the network, and I said, um, you know, I have to be the one that produces the show myself because I'm the only one that these Amish kids will work with, which was a lie. Wow. Um, but I had wanted to do it uh, myself, me and my wife, because okay. I was tired of my shows getting watered down, you know? And even, you know, the, at TLC at the time, they, yeah, Discovery Networks rather, even the cameras that, that they made you use at the time, I don't know if you remember season one of Breaking Amish, but I had used all different cameras that nobody had ever used before. And it had like a real filmic look and a different look. And the same thing with season one of Amish Mafia. It was a totally different look. That I remember.
1: Yeah, I I remember season one of Amish Mafia.
0: Yeah. It was a totally different look and a totally different thing. So I kind of went off the specs that were provided by Discovery Channels. I really went rogue. Um, And it was kind of like my last chance. You know, at that point, 2012, I was 41 years old. And I was like, this is, you know, you know. Screw this! I'm gonna, I'm, <laughs> I'm, this is I'm gonna do what I want to do. Finally, right?
1: Shoot your shot, as they say.
0: Yeah. Right. So, um, so that's how that all happened. So and it, and it went well, you know. And it went yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, time, Breaking
1: Amish is a yeah, Breaking Amish, mass, massive hit.
0: Yeah, we're on our tenth season of it's now called Return to Amish, but um, it's our tenth season of it, and um, uh, the new season starts in I think January, so the next season rather. So yeah, things are going well. And since then we've done you know hundreds and hundreds of hours of shows and um, we have Def You on Netflix and we do Shark Week now. We've done the highest rated Shark Weeks for the past two, two years. Um, we do Extinct or Live on Animal Planet uh, where we found eight previously thought to be extinct animals, um, which is a really cool show. And uh, we do we have two lifetime scripted movies in development Um, a true crime series at Lifetime. I mean, and a true crime series at VH1. And we just have a lot of stuff um, that my wife and I, Shannon, um, are working on. So ever since 2012, things have really taken off, thankfully. And a lot of that credit goes to my wife who's helped me out quite a bit.
1: What's it like to run a production company with your wife? It's okay. (laughs) Um, This is a trick (laughs) question. This is a trick question. (laughs) So it's good
0: from this perspective. So my wife is, you know, she's, she, her first career was uh, uh, as a lawyer, as a prosecutor. She's a prosecutor in Orange County, California, and then in Manhattan. And then she left that and became um, a television producer. Her first show was Breaking Amish. And she did a great job. You know, she's um, invaluable from a, you know, when we do true crime shows or when yeah. we do interviews when we do interviews with people, like she's, you know, a former trial attorney. So she's very good at interviewing people in the chair, you know, for reality shows.
1: Oh, actually terrified. Yeah. People should be terrified being interviewed by her.
0: <laughs> yeah, she's tremendous. I mean she's really, really good. Uh and she does a lot of our scripted stuff. Um she, uh, she's, I mean, she's great. The downside is that it's 24 seven, right? It, there's no turning it off, you know, because especially now with the pandemic, and we're in our homes, it's all the time. I mean, work, 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 work. work. I mean, there's no sure. shutting it off. We are here sure. constantly talking about work, dealing with work. Uh, we can't even go into the office and go into our separate offices. Like we are here. Right. Uh, and it is right. just constant. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's okay. You know, it has its ups and downs. You know, like, you know, I mean, let's be real. You know, yeah. it's like, as anybody, you know, when you produce with anybody, um, you know, you have creative differences. When yeah. it's your spouse and, you know, you live with them and then it's the uh, coronavirus pandemic and you're here and you can't leave, sure. um, you know, <sighs>
1: it's a little bananas you know yeah i'm sure that breakfast and dinner (laughs) are are, uh, the conversation is not what typical um couples have i'm sure your conversations are a little different it's um Mm -hmm. people haven't seen it on netflix it's a group of students at uh, gallaudet university private college which caters to the deaf and the hard of hearing um and it's a you know it's a docuseries but it's it's fantastic just in terms of you found a, a group of of students who really are they're unfiltered um, because it feels like almost like an MTV show um, from back in the day. You know, the drama, the dating, the the talk about their sex lives and things like that. I mean, you know, it moves really quickly. I was three episodes in before I knew it. So I'd love to know how it came about.
0: The process was um, I was watching this show on Freeform called Switch to Birth which is a scripted show geared towards young adults, uh, you know, like teenagers or whatever. Um, and it's a scripted ensemble, you know, show. And in that show, there happens to be uh, a deaf character or a few deaf characters. And the main character is this actor named Sean Birdie, who's a, a, a famous deaf actor. And he one he just him and his group of friends are are deaf in the show and they just sign like they just sign to one another and nobody mentions that they're deaf and they just happen to you know have their own drama and and whatnot and i always found him to be the most fascinating part of the show and i said to my wife like this should just be its own show like the sign language was like i'd love to know more about this culture and in what it is, because to me, this show, this is the most interesting part of it. So I called my production attorney, Todd, and his, and asked him, like, how would I be able to get into this world? And he said, you know, my funny, you should ask my wife, Todd's wife, uh, is an interpreter, um, wow, uh, for the deaf. So she was able to hook me up with a woman in Texas who works at Texas School for the Deaf, which is a high school, who went to Gallaudet. And um, she connected me um, with the whole deaf community in Austin, Texas. And there's a whole big deaf community in Austin, Texas. There's one in Rochester, New York, and there's one in DC. So I have a, a, a producer who works with me named um, Naima Holmes. And Naima um, is very smart and always up for like, challenges and weird challenges. And, um, very like open-minded and I sent her to Texas and she went to a deaf party. Um, she went to, to visit Peggy in Texas and went to a deaf party. And she called me from there and she was like, this is so interesting. There's like music cranking at this deaf party. Cause they feel the vibrations and it's, it's so interesting. Um, there's this whole world. And then from there, Peggy helped us gain access to Gallaudet university. And then I was trying to get in touch with Niall DeMarco, who's the other executive producer on the show with me. Um, And you may know Niall from uh, America's Top Model. and Dancing with the Stars. He's a very famous deaf activist and actor uh, and personality. He has a lot of YouTube videos. And he's just a great guy and a smart person. And um, I was trying to get in touch with him through his agent, but wasn't having much luck. And uh, Gallaudet. When I went to contact them about doing the show, they said, well, we would feel much more comfortable if you would work with someone like Niall DeMarco, because Niall went here to Gallaudet. And I said, that's so weird. I've been trying to get in touch with them. So they actually put me in touch with Niall. And Niall was so excited about this idea about doing a reality show um, about young adults coming of age uh, In college, you know some about to graduate some just coming to college and you know the decisions of what they're about to do and what. What goes on in their lives and that's all I really wanted to do I didn't want to do anything outside of that I just wanted to do like you said this kind of. Traditional reality show about young adults coming of age similar to what I do with breaking Amish and and what you mentioned about early MTV shows. Um, and you forget that it's in sign language after a while. You're just following the story. The stories are strong, and, and, really and what do. I think what yeah. what I, what I think makes the show so interesting is the casting. And what Naïma and Peggy, who worked on the show with us, who helped us find some of the um, casting people, uh, what they were able to do, and a lot of the deaf producers that we had on the show uh, were able to do, is help us find identified characters, um, students who were very honest and open. A lot of the uh, people on the show, the cast members, are very honest, and that's what makes any documentary, uh, docu series, or docu so interesting. Is honesty. Uh, you know, people being honest with their feelings and you know what they're going through. And on Defu, there's a lot of that, and it's what makes the show really, really interesting, in my opinion. Oh, I did want to go back to you. You would ask me about the pitching process and, and what yeah. that was like. So. I made a tape on my own, self-funded that tape at Gallaudet, and took that around um, and presented that to um, all of the um, the networks that were around at the time. Um, you know, at, at the time it was you know Netflix, Amazon, and then your you know your standard your cable networks. Um, so we took them um, to most everywhere. Some places didn't want to hear the pitch um, because they, when you hear deaf. People automatically, and I don't know if you've been through this, but maybe a lot of producers have, uh, a buyer will hear one thing and automatically identify the pitch of something in their head that yes. they haven't even looked at the tape or thought of what it is. They say, oh, well, we we already have a deaf show. Well, that to me, that's like dumb and yeah. slightly, you know, slightly, you know, bigoted or wrong. I mean, like, what do you mean yeah. you already have a deaf show? Like, I guarantee you whatever you're doing isn't what I'm doing. It's different, right. you know. Yeah. So some of them didn't want to hear it at all; just shut it down. Didn't want to hear the pitch at all. Others said they wanted to dub it if they were to do it, and I, I said they didn't want to do that. Um, so we got to our last pitch, which was Netflix, and um, we had one small offer for a development tape from one network. Um, so I was kind of bummed, but the second we walked into Netflix, they were The first thing they said was, we're really excited that you're here. We've been looking forward to this pitch. We really want to talk to you about this. We've been looking for something like this. Like, this is what they said when we walked in the room. Yeah, And it was awesome. And, you know, so they were really, really open to this thing. And they bought it immediately, um, which was like one of the best moments of my career. was like, you know, you have these pitches where people you know, buy it in the room. That never happens. Right. Um, you know, that happens maybe that happened maybe two other times to me. And I've been around for quite some time. So um, you know, it's exciting when something like that happens.
1: How important do you think that is to show to get this community, the deaf community, a series like this? I think it's important
0: for me, like for me, like I made a lot of Good friends, like a lot of our crew was deaf. Um, you know, the producers that we hired, um, both in the field and, and, and in post, the process that we used was um, uh, really involved. So we made a lot of great, you know, when you do a show, it was this great feeling of, you know, like when you do a new show, Steve, and like when you're a showrunner on a show and you, work with new people and you find some really awesome new people, like you find a new awesome yeah, camera guy course. or camera person, or new editor that you really like. And yeah, like, it kind of gets you inspired again. You're like, wow. So I met a lot of new people like that um, who were deaf, like story producers, field producers, directors, uh, camera person, um, editors, post producers. Um, and it was inspiring, you know, cause they're really good, you know, like mm-hmm. really good. So being able to like open up your world personally, um, from a personal perspective, from you know from my company, you know to open up your world to like new people and meeting new people that you would have never met before unless right. you did a show like this that you can work with again on other stuff and not just deaf shows like any show and like know how yeah. to do it, you know like we have this great system now where we can, it, it's awesome, it's fun, you know, right. um, it's great. So yeah, no I. I love I love everything about the show. I love everything it brought to the company and to my you know to my company and to my career and um, you know into the um, creativity of um, the the people who work for me and their ability to adapt to any situation you know to think outside the box. Yeah. Because the one thing that you don't want to do, you know, like when producers tend to only like to work with their people, I hate that. You know, like, oh, <laughs> yes. I only work with this supervising producer. It's like, really? You only work with that supervising producer on, like, I guarantee you, Steve, like, like we were talking about Friday Night Tikes, like the camera person for Friday Night Tikes could not do the show, like, you know, say yes to the dress or whatever, right? Like, is a different, like, these are different Correct. skill sets, Right. Do you know? Like, you yes. can't bring that person to that show. Right. So, you know, sometimes people don't realize that. Like, every show is a different set of animals
1: yeah it's a different yeah yeah so yeah anyway i want to ask how you became the king of the amish series because if anyone has a question about the amish community you are the man to talk to what is it about the amish (laughs) breaking like you literally like what fascinated you about you know the amish that led you down the path to literally producing how many how many years have you been producing pr- projects about um, eight Jeez. eight so what what is it that that made you so fascinated by this
0: back in 2011 um I was doing meetings you know um to uh to um you know try and find a, a show and I had gone to food network to um, uh, see what they were looking for and she said you know we'd like to do a show about like a restaurant, like maybe like a weird restaurant, you know, maybe like an Amish restaurant. Yeah. So I I said to my wife, I was like, you know, let's go down to Amish country and like, you know, for the weekend and like try and find a thing. I I knew nothing about the Amish or whatever. So we went down there. We found a local fixer. And he started showing us these Amish restaurants and stuff. It was boring. And (laughs) I was like, the food was gross. And it is, it's just nothing special. It's yeah. just like, yeah. it's not, it's like a, it's all, it's all like a, it's just good PR. It's like, just, it's just like chicken and potatoes. It's all the same, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. like, so he started taking us around and I noticed, like he was showing us Amish houses and there were some houses that were just bigger than other people. So you said, notice the wealth disparity amongst the Amish, right? So he started asking a lot of questions like, well, who lives in that house? And who lives in this house? Why did it blah, 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 blah. And he goes, Oh, well, the guy who lives in that house is the bishop. Uh, And you know, that's why his house is, you know, so big. And then there was like this huge house and I go, who lives in that house? And he said, Well, the guy who lives in that house is in charge of Amish aid. And then he started explaining to me what Amish aid was. Amish aid is the local Amish insurance. So the Amish don't have like medical insurance. They tithe their money like 10% of their salary goes to pay this. One guy handles it. It's all in cash and (laughs) he handles all the money and he just so happens to have the biggest house uh, (laughs) in in the neighborhood. So that sounds sketchy. So, So that's really the idea for Amish Mafia was I started digging into how this all works this cash business and who's in charge of amish aid and the crimes that are committed and all of this kind of thing i started digging into it and um i made a tape uh, i pitched that to a and e actually and made a tape for them and they had originally purchased four episodes and then decided against doing the show and i took it to discovery channel the very next day and they immediately bought it or like eight episodes or six episodes or something like that. And it became the highest rated first season show in the history of that network.
1: I remember. Um, yeah. Amish
0: mafia did. And then yeah. breaking Amish became, the, is still the highest rated first season show in the history of TLC. So that both of those shows um, were big, big hits.
1: What do you think the fascination is with the Amish? I'm talking about the audience. Um, you know, like wh- why are people so fascinated with those shows?
0: Because it's a group of people who, who you don't know much about. And when you, some of the shows rate, some of the shows don't. Like when you do the show right and really scratch underneath the surface of what goes on in the Amish community, it's fascinating. Like yeah. if you do a show and just talk about, oh, here's the pies they make sure. and they, yeah. they knit and they do this, it's all a lie. They don't. There's more to it than right. that. There's more going on than just the the PR of what the tourism bureau wants you to see. Um, there's a lot of crimes being committed. Uh, there's a lot of um, skirting of the church rules, which are fascinating. You know, for instance, if you're Amish and you can't have electricity. Um, you and you live next door to somebody who's not Amish, you can run an extension cord from their house into your house and still be in the church's rules. Uh, yeah. And all Amish people have cell phones. All Amish people, most, if not, you know, all Amish people are on Facebook or Instagram. I mean, they all are. I mean, it's just interesting. Like, it's not okay. what you think it is. Oh, they all yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah, it's not what okay. you think it is and they all have cell phones if you go to Lancaster County or Holmes County in, you know in Ohio or any Amish neighborhood or enclave, I mean you go to Target or Walmart and go into the phone cell phone section you will see Amish people there buying burner phones it's not what you think it is it's right. just not what you think it is you know and there's a lot of first-time things, like I'm breaking Amish. There's a lot of things that those kids have never done. That's fascinating. There's right. kids who've never been on an escalator. There's kids who've never flown on a plane or um, had sushi or uh, you know, watching people do things for the first time is fascinating. You know, right. um, yeah, especially nowadays.
1: Right, it's true. Um, I wanted to ask you about. Because I, I'm, I love, I shouldn't say I love. I'm very curious about everyone in our industry's opinion on the death of Quibi. Um, now, <laughs> the quick rise and fall of a platform that started in April and is now dead, um, you know, we're in November, it died in October, um, a platform that had $2 billion, roughly, Are you surprised that it died so quickly?
0: No, because... (laughs) Neither am I. No. Um, and, And there's, look, I've seen a lot of things, you know, where people say, you know, don't harsh on it. There's a lot of inventive things they did. I'm sure there are from the software perspective, things I don't know anything about. I don't know anything about how the software was built and the innovative things they did. I have no idea about any of that. I do know that there are free options for your phone, like TikTok, that are far more, I spend far more time on that. Young people spend far more time on that. I also know that the times I went to Quibi to pitch shows, the people I was pitching to, I had previously pitched at cable networks. And that sensibility should not be somewhere where you're trying to innovate and be new the people i should have been pitching should have been inexperienced and young and looking for to do something different so that's what i think that, that I, I you know i don't think that um you know as you pitch shows you see a lot of the same people yes and a lot of the same networks and that's never a good thing. And I think there needs to be um, an injection of some new ideas at some point. I think the marketplace kind of is starting to call for that on its own and purge itself for that kind of thing. I mean, that's probably not a popular opinion, but I mean, I I think that there needs to be some kind of a change. I think Quibi is a good example of of that.
1: My overall take was from the beginning that you had a very traditional style of programming going on a very new way of watching content, which is short form on your phone. And that never made sense to me. So you were targeting a young audience that watches content on their phone in short form, but they already had lots of different ways to watch short form content on their Correct. phone, YouTube, TikTok, Snapchat. And yet you are asking them to watch, different kinds of content like and pay and pay. So you wanted them to not be able to make content, which is what they do on Snapchat, which is what they do on TikTok, which is what they do on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So now you wanted them just to watch. That's it. There was no interactivity. And to me, that was the biggest flaw. in it was like you had no library like they do on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or Disney Plus or any of the other streamers. You literally just had original content that was made in a very traditional way, so you essentially were hoping that a younger audience would just go, "Yeah, this content is so good, I'm going to buy in to this short form content," and they just didn't.
0: Well, you know, when whenever there's a celebrity attachment mandate or a um, you know a demand for a celebrity, it it bothers me, and it make it's a bad sign, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I don't know of an instance where it's improved viewership. Um, you know, perhaps I haven't studied it as much as I should, but I don't know. Um, it's it's a bad sign to me when someone says, you know, you need a, a celebrity. You know, like yeah. I don't know. I'd rather just get a good idea that cuts through the noise. You know, you you have to cut through the noise. You have to take a chance, and um, you know that's what I try to do with my shows that I create. I try to do something you've never seen before, cut through the noise with it a little bit. And um, uh, it's proven to be successful for me. Um, and, and, you know, having to go through the jumping through hoops of attaching a celebrity to something who doesn't end up doing anything other than raise the cost per hour for a network is, yeah. um, is you know, foolish, I think.
1: Um, all right. So you've had a lot of success with pitching. I have a big pitch coming up this week, so I wanted to pick your brain, and I think the audience can gain from this. What is? Do you have a specific style when it comes to pitching? Do you have a specific strategy um, when it goes to pitching? Or do you change? Do you and Shannon, do you guys alter your pitches depending on what the project is, whether it's Def you, um, or it is a, a Breaking Amish, or you said you have scripted stuff coming up or you have True Crime – does it? Does your style vary? Does the way you pitch vary? Um, or do you guys now have it down to a science? You do it the same way every time?
0: No, I don't do it the same way every time. I do um, only pitch things I like. I don't pitch more than one thing. I only pitch one thing okay. in, in a meeting. I only always pitch just one thing. Um, unless the opportunity comes and they say something in the meeting that they're looking for that – I happen to have that I wasn't expecting to pitch, you know, Okay. then I'll bring something else up. Uh, I also, if I'm pitching with a partner, if it's somebody I partnered with, if it's, um, if I'm pitching with somebody who's uh, talent on the show, I'll let them talk. I won't over talk. I'll let the viewer talk. If I play a tape, I'll usually not talk right after the tape. I'll let them talk first. Um, so um yeah sometimes less is more not to overtalk and be a nervous talker which is hard to do if you're nervous yeah. you know um but yeah no there's no real strategy other than that you know um you have to you know i again like i don't pitch a lot of home renovation shows or things of that nature the things i'm pitching usually are weird um <laughs> they involve like extreme access into weird worlds or cultures or something strange um um, or it's a shark week that we're that yeah. we are doing that takes place in a bizarre land or a bizarre place. Um, you know, so there's always something cool and interesting that somebody will want to hear, hopefully, you know.
1: Got it. Okay, cool. That's very helpful. I always like to end the show with what you're watching or what you think the audience needs to watch. So obviously, people should watch Deaf You. Is there anything any other? Uh, hot snakes shows that are on right now that they need to watch or something coming out soon that they should watch? Or is there anything on that you've seen that you're like, Oh, this is amazing. People should watch it.
0: Well, return to Amish is coming out in January. I think in January um, you should watch um, all my shark weeks. What else should you, want? <laughs> you should <laughs> want. Um, I mean, I watch, I watch everything. It's like, you know, I mean, right now I'm watching a ton of news, but like, what am I watching now? I'm watching Ted Lasso, um, Mandalorian. Uh, What do I watch? I mean, I watch everything, man. I watch literally everything. I watch Borat. Um, (laughs) I watch everything. Like, what don't I watch? I mean, I watch everything. You have to watch everything. That's the other thing. Like, when I interview people, do you ever interview people for a, a reality show job, like a story producer? Some young kid, and they say, oh, "I don't watch much reality TV." Yes. It's like, get out of here! You yeah, know, like, are what, you- what are you doing here? <laughs> why are you here? <laughs> why are you here? Yes. Well, what, what made you think you could come here and get a job? I don't understand. Like, why are you interested right. in this? Then, yeah. if you're better than this. <laughs>
1: You're not better than this. Right. If you prefer scripted, perhaps you should venture towards that, uh, you know. I've I've pitched people who say they don't watch TV.
0: Like, if you ever pitch somebody and they say they don't watch TV, it's like, I would kill for your job. I don't understand. Like, there was a time when I would have killed somebody for your job. Like, I don't get it. But anyway, you have to watch everything. You have to, like, literally... You should be watching as much television as humanly possible. You have to.
1: I do probably too much. Yeah, I finished. What do you watch? Val, I finished the vow, um, which oh, is the the Nexium, docu series on HBO. Yeah. Um, it's not. But there's NXIVM, like three
0: Nexiums. Yeah. How, how, how do you rank the Nexiums? Are, are, have you seen I, all
1: of them? No, I haven't seen all of them. Um, look, I am not the. I'll, I'll admit that, like, I'm not the cult fanatic that some people are, but I've read about Nexium and, um, you know, so I, I generally knew the story and I was curious. Nine episodes was too much for me. Like, I, I, I don't think, I didn't even think, you know, I was a Bulls fan growing up. I didn't think you needed 10 episodes to tell the last dance. Nine episodes yeah. about a cult, I did not need that. I thought you could have told it in four or five at the most six. So I really th- felt like they had amazing access and you're an access guy. Um, so may- you would probably appreciate that. I don't know if you saw any of it, but I just felt like they hurt themselves from a story perspective by dragging it out so much. Um, mm. That being said, I watched all the episodes. Yeah, so so are, they yeah. won. Yes. They won that war. Yeah. But I, I think I'm all NXIVM out. Um, I think I've had my <laughs> Um Yes. So anywho, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and, uh, for doing this.
0: Thanks, Steve. Anytime.
1: All right, brother. Take care. And everybody out there. Thank you for listening to another episode of no script, no problem. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, download and rate it with five stars. It's available on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google play stitch or luminary. And you can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. You can also write a question if you have one. So I can answer it then on the show. Email those questions to no no script problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks to Mike DeLay and Real Voice LA for the audio connection. And thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Parkwoods for No Script. No problem.
0: Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.